Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, a podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at the highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 22 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have the lead strength and conditioning coach at Warwick University and English Institute for Sport contractor, Jordan Webster. How are you doing today, Jordan? Hey Todd, I'm great mate, how are you? Yeah, very well mate, can't complain, can't complain. So for the listeners who've uh, not come across you before, do you think you could give us a quick introduction to uh, who you are and what you do? Of course, of course. Um, so yeah, as you said, I'm currently the lead S&C coach at the University of Warwick. Um, at the University of Warwick, I have a few different roles that kind of ties into that. So I'm, I kind of lead the strength and conditioning internship. We call it the coach development program where we, we currently coach and mentor 12 to 15 uh, developing S&C coaches. So that's, that's a big part of what I do as my role. And then I actually have the coaching side as well, which is, is obviously, you know, trying to set best practice and work with our team Warwick performance athletes. So that's um, from grassroots, you know, sort of entry-level sports into university. And then working with our scholarship athletes, the, we've got some really, really good qualified elite athletes this year, actually. So that's currently what I'm doing. And then, as you said, with um, DIS, I'm a contractor. So when contracts come up, you can either get offered them or, or not. And then you go in and basically do that job. Perfect. So you're giving us a little overview of what you do um anyone who knows me knows one of my favorite books is simon sinek's start with why um so why do you do what you do why why strength and conditioning mm, beautiful question um so i think i was trying to think about this the other day actually so why do i do strength and conditioning and i feel like one i have a genuine love for strength training um and everything that's involved with exercise like that's always been a a big passion of mine you know ever since we sort of went into the gym um when we were like 15 years old we were doing like a gym instructors level two and I was like wow this is this is cool like being able to instruct somebody and take them through exercise was was massive you know you get a, a really good buzz from it um I think I think that probably rubs off into why I why I do it because I love it so much and I feel like it has such such a benefit to people you know like seeing somebody complete their first you know technically sound split squat you know and then do it by themselves is like it's an amazing feeling you're like you've done something you've taught something so I imagine that's it's similar to teaching I would imagine Todd I don't know if you get that same feeling when you you kind of conquer it yeah yeah there's there's definitely that moment where you I don't know you it's almost seeing someone not be like you know we always coaches we all love that sort of natural athlete where you show them it once and they need one cue or whatever and they just do it perfectly but there's definitely a lot to be said for that sort of somebody who I mean even to a certain extent somebody who's not an athlete at all whether it's an elderly person you know oh wow my body couldn't do this before and now for example I can get up and down off the floor yeah there's something incredibly satisfying about that I totally agree 100% um and then obviously there's a side of things of, I think as S&T coaches, we probably all wanted to be an elite athlete, but then realized that we're actually unathletic and uncoordinated and all those things. So, so if just, you can be in, yeah. We just pick things up and put them down. Yeah, basically. 
So I think being involved in that situation, if you love sport, you get it. You love the team, the team atmosphere. You love everything that goes into it. So I think being involved and kind of helping them through problem solving or whatever your role actually does, I think it's massive. And before we dive into it, so to give viewers an outline for where this podcast is going to go, we're going to literally go from start to finish in terms of uh, getting a job in strength and conditioning, which I know I've covered in uh, with a, on a previous podcast with Rob Anderson, but we're almost going to dive into the finer details of it. But before we get into that, you mentioned about, for example, the team environment, uh, the love for athletic pursuits. Do you just want to talk briefly about, I was just thinking about your um, strongman and being involved in that because obviously it isn't as far as I'm aware it's an individual sport but I know you're massive on the team environment so do you want to talk about what first got you into strongman before we dive into the uh, job specific stuff yeah of course um so my first I guess my first experience of um strength training you know I started off very sort of broad and it kind of led me down the squat bench deadlift it was very much you know powerlifting, bodybuilding those kind of things and when I was training um, the Sheffield Hallam Strength and Conditioning Suite, there was, this, there was this guy in the corner, and he looks like the manliest man you've ever seen. You know, pure bloke. There's, there's no messing around with it. Um, and in the end, we got spoke, well, I got speaking to him, and, you know, he was like, oh, I do strongman. You know, I actually, I run a club, you know, and it's down the road. Um, feel free to jump in, you know, come down. Um, and after some... Mm, I'm in an hour in for a while, you know, probably quite intimidated by this pure, I don't know, Titan that was over there. You know, I went down. Um, and what it actually was is this, this strongman club was a, um, it was a research project and it was, it was his club, but he was a PhD student, um, in recovering drug and alcohol addicts. So he was there for recovery and he was trying to use exercise or strongman as a medium to kind of, teach people good habits and get them on the road to recovery. So it was quite, it was interesting. You know, you're sort of, you're surrounded with a lot of different people, but the social side of it was, was huge. Um, you know, we're all having a good laugh. We're all following a really good training program and it was just a great atmosphere to be around. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot to be missed. I mean, we've had conversations over the years with uh, different practitioners, obviously both been, in the same environment, especially at the uh, English Institute for Sport. And I obviously just like any successful organization, they talk about the uh, culture, but there's a lot to be said. Yes, obviously we love the science and, you know, how many sets, reps, whatever, but there's a lot to be said for almost an average program just delivered in a fantastic environment. Definitely. I agree. Um, and I think when you get down to, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, you can teach anybody, um, you can teach anybody sets and reps. You can teach anybody the science. You know, anybody can pick that up at some point. But, you know, being able to be a good person that fits in with um, an environment is a little bit harder to teach. You know, it's a little bit more ingrained in you. Um, you can improve it. You know, I know Brett Bartholomew speaks a lot about emotional intelligence and fitting in. Um, but it's a lot harder. Yeah, and that's, again, it's probably a topic for later on down the podcast, but definitely want to dig a little deeper into, for example, something like emotional intelligence, which is arguably, well, I, I, it flat out is harder to teach somebody. Um, 
then as you said this is how you do a split squat um but we'll definitely dive into that a little bit later um so let's just sort of kick things off so most people go to i don't know college and or even before college and they know they love sport they know they want a job in sport and maybe they're not uh, good enough to be an elite athlete so they decide right i'm going to go to university and i don't know i want to work with elite athletes or athletes of any kind so i'm going to go to university um so my first question is and this is very deliberately very broad but should someone with those interests go to university? Well, you know, I think, like you said, it's a broad question, so you'll probably get quite a broad answer. And I think with with that, um, if you have the interest, I think you should do it. You know, I feel like going to university is really a good thing. You know, you have the life experience, which is one massive side of it, but also the things you do learn on an undergrad is 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 important, you know, you, you learn how to critically evaluate research, you learn how to try and apply that to the real world, you know, and obviously if it's a sport course, you'll go into everything from creatine supplementation to, you know, actual um, sports research. I feel like it's not essential, um, but if you're trying to get into strength and conditioning in this day and age, then yeah, you're probably going to have to get a degree, you know, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be, you know, a, a sports science degree. In, in my opinion, I feel like the best coach in the world probably has a degree in Japanese somewhere, you know, um, but he's just really good at dealing with people and has a really good um, kind of amount of experience in sport. You know, I don't feel like it's massively important that you do a sports science or a sports coaching. I feel like there's more to it than that because you can learn all that information elsewhere through life experiences and through good, good teachers. Yeah. And funny enough, uh, I know one of our, one of our mentors, when we were both uh, um, within the uh, English Institute of Sport, one of the things he said to me that I absolutely loved when it came to the end of my internship and he was talking about hiring the next intern he just said he didn't really care what the degree was in. He said, all a degree shows me is that you can meet deadlines and you've got the ability to critically evaluate. He's like, it isn't any more than that. It isn't any less than that. So I definitely don't think if there's people out there listening to this who I don't know, have done a degree in business or whatever, and they've always just loved sport, but they've thought, right, it's not secure income or it's, there's more money elsewhere. I don't know. Um, there's definitely nothing wrong with pursuing something else uh, because as you said, you can learn all the other stuff. So 100%, and I think I'll oh, go on. No, go on. 100%. I think with that, you know, your degree, uh, as long as you can kind of look, look into it enough, probably will carry over in some way, shape or form to the strength and conditioning profession. You know, if it's business, congratulations, you've got an idea of how um, organizational models work and where you fit in that as a sport department. If it's psychology, well, we know why that would apply. Communication, learning different personalities and those kind of things. So there's, there's definitely learning to be had outside of just a strict sports science course. You know, you've just got to try and think about where it applies. Yeah. And digging a little bit deeper on that and almost on that subject, um, what kind of criteria, and I'll give a little bit of context to this as well. What kind of criteria should people be looking at when they're looking into a course, be it sports science, be it business, whatever. Uh, and the reason why I say this is because, uh, now I look back on it, my undergrad probably left a lot to be desired, whereas my master's I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, so yeah, if we can sort of help people who 
don't almost don't know what they don't know with this question, then that'd be uh, great. No pressure. So I think with that, um, if we look at the current landscape of, of employment and if we're speaking about specifically sports performance is, you know, we've all seen the statistics of how many undergrads are leaving, um, leaving every year with a degree, you know, and it's, it's huge. It was it 15,000 more, you know, it's high. Um, and they've all got a degree. So you're, you're not standing out from the crowd in any way, shape or form. You know, some of them are going to have a first, some of them are going to have a third, but that doesn't really, really matter. Um, what does matter is your experience, you know? So for me, I would look at doing an undergrad, um, in a place that has a lot of opportunities. So, uh, if I take my example, Sheffield. Okay. So Sheffield, we had a, an undergrad which had a placement year or placement um, period. So you get six to eight weeks to go out into the real world, find an organization and kind of delve into it. And that's, that's huge. You know, so I think actually looking at the course syllabus and thinking, wow, you know, is this going to give me what I need to stand out? That's one thing. I think you've obviously got the other aspects of, does it fit in with your lifestyle? If you don't want to move to Scotland, then you don't want to move to Scotland. That's not for you. But also looking about the city around it, okay, if it's Sheffield, can I go and volunteer at, you know, Rotherham Titans Football Club? You know, can I go to the IS and see if I can shadow a session? Can I go to the university and become an intern? So I think looking at the surrounding areas is going to be really important there. Yeah, I think that's spot on again, similar when um, I did my master's at Middlesex and obviously being a London based university and the fact they've got links with so many, I mean, just being in London, to be honest, uh, everything is a tube away. So even if it takes you an hour and even if it takes you an hour and it's only 10 miles away, you know, you, you can feasibly get there. Whereas if you're at a university that realistically, you're only going to be able to help out with research projects or supervising or being part of a PhD like team. That's just, if you wanted to work in elite sport and for example, if your passion is coaching, then that's perhaps not the best idea. So if we go into, so you mentioned about placements, uh, obviously internships are quite similar. I know we've both done our fair share um, and they're getting increasingly more competitive for increasingly, well, in a lot of cases, no money at all. Um, how would you differentiate? So let's say I'm a sort of sports science student, strength and conditioning student, whatever. And I see, oh, there's an internship on uh, advertised on the UKCA or wherever it is how should I differentiate or how do I know if that's going to be the right internship program for me? Cool. So good question. And I think every employer is going to be a little bit different here, but I can give you my, my perspective on what I think is going to be a really good route. I think you see it pop up on UKCA and you're going to read it and you're like, you know, what? that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, it might fit me. It might not. I might get it. I might not. I always feel like the first step needs to be contact them. You know, it needs to be go to the bottom where it says my email address. Okay, right. I'm going to send Jordan Webster an email. Hi, Jordan. Saw the advert on the UKSA website. It looks like a really interesting opportunity. Um, I just have a few questions about the position. Would you mind if I popped down to Warwick and bought you a coffee? We all love free coffee. Or if I could give you a phone call, you know, and talk through it. Awesome. Send it off. You know, I think most employers will, will reply and be, they'll give you one of two answers. It'll be a case of, yeah, of course. In that case, you're absolutely buzzing. You know, you've got that, that FaceTime, you've got that 
that ability to build some rapport. And then the other side of it, which I've never had happen, is they'll say no or not reply. You know, they may, they may be too busy. If they're too busy, then you're no worse off. Realistically, you're probably a little bit better off because they've seen your name before. You know, they know you're keen. So for me, that's, there's no downside to this. The caveat being, if, if you're not very good at conversations anyway, then doing that over the phone can feel a little bit awkward, you know, and you may just give them a reason that they don't want to hire you. So you are going to have to get comfortable speaking to people, but if you're getting in this profession anyway, you've yeah. got to practice that. A hundred percent. It is a weird one. Even saying, oh, you might give them a position not to hire you. It's one of them where you'd almost be, dare I say, filtered out anyway. You just might've got let down the process. I mean, I don't know whether you've had it. You probably have, but you see someone's, I don't know, CV cover letter and you're like, wow, this looks immaculate. This reads brilliantly. And then you get them in front of you and you're like, can I see myself spending 10 hours a day plus with this person and us getting on? And as you said, fitting into that organizational uh, culture. Um, so actually I, I don't think that's a bad thing. And also I think you mentioned a good thing there in terms of, you know, let's say, I don't know, Warwick, Sheffield, Durham, wherever. I think traveling there means a lot. And like, for example, yeah, it might not be on your doorstep, but I'm sure we've both done it where we've traveled, especially when you're sort of younger, you have to make that effort. Because if you're looking at it thinking, oh, well, can't really be bothered to go to Sheffield. That's like a three hour train journey or whatever. What would make that person think that they're going to go the extra mile in the role? Because as you said, 15,000, I mean, it's probably more now, 15,000 people with a sports science degree. And you, if, I don't know, Warwick's too far for you to get on the train or whatever, then strength and conditioning is not for you. I mean, it's not the best well-paid option. Um, and I think I totally agree with you in terms of actually, ironically, I think if you had someone with a business brain, it's probably going to be easier to teach them the S&C stuff and less financially of an investment to teach them the S&C stuff than it is going to be to have all the S&C knowledge, but then no business, not having the business acumen, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, going to meet them. And as you said, if that means you say, oh, you get into a general conversation or I'm actually from or I live in X area, they're like, bloody hell, he's traveled however far, then it's going to be a bit of a difference maker versus the person who lives five miles down the road, but just can't be bothered to send an email. Exactly. I think we've probably all done it. We've probably all just sent off that application and hope for the best. And sometimes it will pay off, you know, like some employers just want to do it by the book. And that's, that's not to mean I'm going to bend the rules, but if you want to try and build that rapport, I feel like it's a good step to, to go through. Um, but yeah, from that, I think it's, it's always going to be a little bit obvious. You know, there's the, the caveat to that again is as soon as an application pops up is, you know, you're going to be flooded with applications, you're going to be flooded with people trying to call you. The best way to get a job is to know them beforehand, you know, and you, obviously you can't know everybody. Um, but that is why networking is, is really, really important. You know, going to meet different people, you know, going to conferences, um, being proactive and seeking out people's advice. That, that's a really important thing. It's, it's an organic growth, you know, instead of, you know what, Todd, you've got a job coming up, so I'm going to start liking all your pictures. You know, it's stuff, it's stuff that we all do to be noticed. You know, it's, it's an it's just something we do, you know, if we speak about LinkedIn, you know, it's a classic, I know you're there, I want you to know that I'm thinking about you. It's so, it's routine, you know, 
but it's so routine that it, it, you just blend in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, so we spoke a little bit about, you know, the application, well, leading up to the application process, I think it's important that you, you get the inside knowledge from the employer, ask them some questions that might help you in your application, you know, get a real world experience of what does a day actually look like? But perfect. Now you can use that in your cover letter. You can, you can look back on that conversation. You know, you can even mention it and just say, um, thanks for taking the time the other day, Todd, to talk me through this application process. I've decided to put in a CV and cover letter, please find attached. And then you just start drawing on that conversation that you had with them. You know, I think that's huge. And also if we go back to the, as you said, it, it's easy to default to, oh, just like a load of their posts. Um, But ironically in uh, something I watched the other day, um, it's by an author and the name of the book is uh, digital minimalism. It talks about basically how we overuse social media and actually is it that important? But he was saying how, for example, a lot of coaches, and I'll, you'll see the point in this uh, in a second, a lot of coaches, whether it's in business or whatever, they're like, right, must post every single day because I need to stand out. And he's saying, well, if everyone else is posting every single day, you're not standing out. And it says, for example, a 14-year-old can pick up a phone and post every single day. So actually, liking the photos, anyone could do that. So when there's 15,000 applicants, going back to the undergraduate thing, everyone has an undergraduate degree, everyone's liking the same posts. What actually are you doing to stand out? Agreed. It's, it's that thing of, it really is just about standing out, you know, and setting yourself apart. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the time it is going to be um, experience and being a nice person, you know, and just being a good person that people want to be around. I think they're the two things that are going to help you out. Um, so if we if we kind of move a little bit forward then, so you've done the pre-step, you've, you've spoke to the employer, you've inquired about the, um, the position. So now you need to submit a CV and there's probably going to be a cover letter or a task that they're going to ask you to, to go through. Um, and if I just run through some of the things that I think are good and some of the things that I think are bad, um, and we can speak about any that you you may not agree with, or we can have a discussion with that. That's that's fine. In terms of CV, you know the pretty the pretty broad ones are. It needs to look visually pleasing. You know, if it's done in size twelve font, you know, New Times Roman, it's all really small. It's hard to read, and it's just not going to grab me. You know, so I think in some way you need to make it visually pleasing. You know, if that is using um a little bit of a different template fantastic as long as it doesn't look tacky some people like to use um pictures you know so if you put up a like a profile picture just pretty professional or if you coaching or something like that i think it helps put a name to the face for me personally i quite like that that's that's my opinion i quite like seeing logos um on a on a cv as well i think I'm trying to think who said it. It might have been Kierwen and uh, Flat, where he said about his time in Argentina. Um, so now on his CV, he's got that Argentinian logo. So now, anytime somebody sees that, they see that and they think, "Wow, you know, that's that's pretty impressive." And they start to relate their experiences to that. So it, it just captures you a little bit more. That's what logos are for. You know, it's brand identity, so that you can get noticed. If I could and just. I think- yeah, no, if I could just chip in a little bit uh, to add some extra, because I completely agree. And that's 
exactly what I've done with my CVs in the past. Um, but I'd also mention as well, don't think that, for example, just because you had, I don't know, six months a year with a big organization that that automatically is better than say working with the Sunday league football team. Because uh, for example, I've had, uh, I've worked with sort of people who athletically are, you know, no, you know, they're terrible, but you've, you're doing every single little bit of their program. You're helping them with the psychology of holding down good habits. And this is also where I think don't be put off. If for example, your training experience, or your coaching experience is 10 years of PT or, you know, as long as you can prove what value you've added, don't automatically think, oh, well, I don't know, I work for I don't know, some commercial gym that that's automatically going to be thrown out. And equally, don't think just because you put the logo there, like if somebody's put the logo there, but all they were doing is filling out the protein shakes, then I'm like, right, well, how valuable was that experience with this, I don't know, Premier League football club? 100% agree. 100%. I think... This is purely just on the subject of visually pleasing, you know, and moving on from that, once it, once it looks nice and it grabs your attention and it looks professional, you know, you need to start looking at the, the nuts and bolts of it. And like you said, you need to actually demonstrate that you've, that you've been trying, you know, that you're reaching out to me, but this isn't your first stab in the dark at SNC. This isn't your first stab in the dark at coaching. I want to see that you've, you know, you've been PTing for a little bit or you've been shadowing a few people. You've been to um, a different university to see how their structure works. I want to see that you're keen, you know, and I want you to tell me, what did you gain from training your, your auntie? You know, you was in the back garden and you didn't really have much equipment. So you have to be really good logistically. And because she was quite shy and new to S&C, you have to tailor your communication style quite a lot. These are the things that we want to we want to hear. We want to know about the impact you've had. You know, those are things that are, are really valuable, especially at this internship level where you might not have the the Argentina or the EIS experiences. Tell me what you did get from it. You know, as much as I think you doing a season in MAGA was was beneficial. You know, try and make it appropriate. You know, try and make it appropriate to coaching or communication in some way. So I think. If we go a little bit further than that, then um, we spoke about uh, making it look visually pleasing. So capturing the eye, because you're going to get 200 CVs coming through for a job. It needs to kind of jump out in some way, shape or form. Um, we spoke about uh, making the most of those experiences. So telling me what you did, how you did it and the impact. That's going to be huge. I think the next bit is kind of leading on from what we said before about what's going to make you stand out. And everybody seems to have a BSc. Everybody seems to have an MSc, you know, and to an extent people getting those S&C qualifications. For me, I, I personally would put the, C, um, the experience first on your CV, just because I feel like that's the stuff I'm bothered about. Mm. Like you said, I think there's two sort of caveats to that as well. I'd much rather just see your experience so I can be like, you know what, he's done this, 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 he's trying, he's, or she's really, really going for this. Um, but it's, it's red tape at the end of the day. For a lot of organizations, the, the qualifications are red tape and you might not always get somebody that's tiring who gets that. You know, it might be somebody in HR that's going to follow it by the book, you know, get the checklist. And if you don't demonstrate every single essential desirable and qualification then you're out straight away i um i think 
with that, um, you just need to pay attention to detail with your, with your CV and your cover letter, 100%, because the amount of applications we've received for our current cohort where people have left their tracking on, on their cover letter. So I can literally see the copy and paste efforts that they've made. You know, there was no personalized aspect to it being the University of Warwick. You know, this easily could have been a job at Asda for all I know. You know, it was, it was, it was very generic. And that's not me putting, putting him down because, you know, we've, we've probably all done it. I know at the start of my journey, I was, a, I was applying for so many jobs that I didn't want to write a personalized one for every single job because I'm just going to get a no anyway. That's kind of a cycle. You're probably getting a no because it's not personalized, you know. Um, just, just to interrupt there, I think uh, one of the thing, one of the questions I've bullet pointed uh, later on in this podcast is uh, choosing a job and I've almost put it in uh, Dr. Evil's inverted commas um, because there are so few uh, roles within the S&C industry, at least if you want to work for an organization that some people would be like, Oh, I can't choose a job. I have to apply for everything. But it's one of those where if you're just like dishing out CV cover letter to every single role that offers one in the hope that they're, you know, by applying for more, you increase your chances, but you're not putting in the time and effort. I would say don't bother. And I'd almost say, go big on the ones that really sort of stoke your fire. So if you're, I don't know, if you love basketball for whatever reason, not to say that another sport won't help you, of course it will. And uh, I almost find I learn more from those other sports. But if it's too time consuming, I would argue it's not too time consuming because there's not that many roles about anyway. But if you think it's too time consuming to apply that level of detail to every single one, pick the ones that really stoke your fire and go big on them. As you said, rather than spending, say, I don't know, half an hour on a cover letter across 10 different organizations, spend three hours or however long that equivalent time is, as you said, dropping them an email, finding out some more information. Don't just ask them questions that they're going to hear all the time. Ask questions you genuinely care about, not questions to try and show off your knowledge and go big on those ones that for you are like, wow, this is me, for want of a better phrase. Definitely. I think with that, it's, it's hard. It's a hard industry to get in, you know, and we probably all will just apply for pretty much every job that comes out when you're first starting. But there just needs to be that quality there. You need to make sure that you are, you're putting in the effort that is going to reap a reward, you know. Um, I think that's, that's massive. You know, I think that quality that you're going to see come through in an email is going to be, it's going to be apparent. And you, you're going to think, you know what, Todd's went that, Todd went that extra mile there, you know, he used my name, which is a big one as well, you know, in an email, you know, if you know that you're sending this application to Todd Davidson, you know, I'm not going to spell your name wrong and put 15 D's at the end of Todd, you know, I'm not going to put to whom it may concern or anything like that, you know, because it's, it's quite impersonal, you know, it's quite cold. I feel like if I know your name's Todd, I'm going to use it. If you don't know, then, then whom is okay. Um, but I think it's, it's doing that extra little bit of research to, to make sure that it comes across well and you're building that rapport. You know, it's all the things that you sort of, um, I don't know if you've, have you read um, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Yes, I was just yeah. going to chip in on that. Um, so one of the mentors that we both had, um, and we'll get to talking about what makes a good mentor later on, but I still remember the, uh, there's a Paralympic athlete and uh, I remember 
so I'd be always be like, oh, hi, mate, hi, mate, hi, mate. And uh, the mentor, he, well, he just said to me, you know his name? It's John. Use his name. Like, as blunt as you like. And how to win friends and influence people was something I'd read years back. Um, it was cutting, but I was like, he's, he's got a point. Like, I wasn't trying not to use his name, but there's just such a difference to, I don't know, I'd go to shake your hand, hi, John, how you doing? Versus you know, that sort of awkward, you know, you know my name, I know your name, I've not used it type thing. It's exactly, you know, and I think that the quote that um, the guy that writes How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie, he, the section he puts on using somebody's name is, somebody's name is the most sweetest sound to them. So use it, you know, if, if somebody uses your name it instantly, you know, it's, wow, I've got a little bit of a connection with them there. You know, it's, they, they actually took the time out of their day, you know, out of their mental sort of capacity to remember that, mm. you know, and following on from that as well. If you can add a little bit of substance to that, that opening email, you know, and say, oh, hi, Todd. Um, hope you're doing well, mate. I saw, oh, well, not mate. Hope you're doing well. Saw the application that you put out on the UKSA to assist with um, your personalized business. And I really like what you're doing with the thing at the minute. Um, I love this post, that post, you know, if you can try and personalize it, I think automatically it kind of fills that person with a little bit of, I don't know, like you've built a connection, you know, yeah. it's that subconscious. Yeah. And almost tagging in off the back of that, um, something I think I'm pretty sure it's Kieran and Flat who said it. Um, and this will be apparent in all sort of business books. I one that I was reading the other day said, uh, don't try and sell somebody on the features try and describe the pain points that you can relieve. So for example, you're not selling a massive TV with four HDMI ports, which to most people might be gobbledygook, but the biggest pain when people, I don't know, buy a TV is right. I've got to, I don't know, stick it on the wall or I've got to put all the wiring in. If you're saying, right, well, here's the TV. You can buy it from us. We'll stick it on the wall for you. We're going to make sure that it works before we leave. You know, great. So going back to your example of, you know, I don't know, I email you and I'm like, Oh, Hi, Jordan. Notice the role for the University of Warwick. If I said, for example, I don't know, uh, I've noticed in your videos, for example, you don't have as much space when you're running these sessions. Well, here's a few ideas I've come up with where we can do some good quality movement work in a limited amount of space. And I learned this from, I don't know, teaching five-year-olds and we only had a small classroom to do it in or, you know, whatever when you're solving the pain points rather than just because I might be looking at it being like, right, well, he just wants a job at the end of the day. He just wants the money. Whereas if you're showing me actually, here's how I can provide unique value to you. Now, all of a sudden I'm interested because it doesn't just seem like this person, for example, wants to meet me for coffee to get all the information and then decide whether it's for him. And I'm left thinking, hang on a minute, 200 people have asked me for a coffee and I've booked in to see 199 of them next week. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, those pain points, you know, and it's, that is valuable is seeing what the organization actually needs, you know, and what it's actually like. And that's, that is kind of why we were speaking about it earlier. If you can know that person beforehand, or you can know that organization, then that's, then that's useful, you know? So if you've been there to shadow a session and look what their internship is like, then you'll already know this information. You'll already know that um, they really value this quality, that quality, you know what kind of struggles and, and conflicts that they have in a day-to-day um, running of their performance program. Um, so from there, so we've, we've done the CV for the most part. We're moving on to the next part, which is the cover letter. Okay, so 
with the cover letter, there's probably always going to be a task. You know, for the most part, it'll be in, you know, 500 words or less. Tell us why you want this role, you know, or in 500 words or less, describe to us why you would want this internship. Tell us what experience you have to warrant getting this internship. You know, those kind of questions. And with this, I think you've got to be pretty clever. You've got to be, you know, pretty savvy about it and think, right, what do I need to hit from an essentials and desirables point of view? You know, so most jobs will have an essentials and desirables. You need to hit every single one, you know, and be, be clear with that. You know, if it says that you need somebody that is a good communicator, then in your cover letter, you're going to put, I am a great communicator and I have proven this and honed it by working with this sport, that sport, you know, it's, don't leave it a riddle. Don't leave it this cryptic clue that I'm going to have to work out. You know, I might be able to work it out as an S&C coach, but if it's a HR person, then, you know, it's gone. So the essentials and desirables just need to be hit. You know, um, if, they, if you can't hit them, you know, if you don't have the desired qualification, then fine, move on to the next, the, the next part of that application process. Um, I think... If they give you a task, and this sounds pretty obvious, if they give you a task, you know, describe how you would benefit this internship, make it a title, you know, in, in this cover letter, I'm going to describe how I'm going to, you know, make the most of this internship, because that's how I can tell that it's personalized as well. You know, um, we've had cover letters that are obviously like copy, uh, copy and paste. We've had ones that are um, personalized in it's an obvious quality difference straight away. So, um, you got any questions on that or are we pretty cool? Um, no, I think you've, I think you've elaborated it. I just always think, uh, you know, tell me the point, give me the proof and sell me the story. And I, I almost go back to your thing where you were saying, oh, you know, the best business, the best uh, S and C coach probably has a degree in Japanese or something like something I think that will really benefit people is, and whether you want to research this or not, there's Ted talks on it. Um, but it's learn how to tell a good story. Don't just say, for example, um, and again, this is me being passive, but don't just say I'm a good communicator because I've worked with lots of sports. Tell me, for example, how, Oh, there was this really timid and shy, I don't know, young female athlete who was intimidated by the weights room. So what we did to um, reduce that intimidation was, uh, I don't know, we uh, played with balloons as an agility game, or we, for example, disguised a goblet squat by making it a balance challenge and putting a water bottle on top of it. You know, don't just say, here's the point, here's the, and as you said, get somebody else who is not from strength and conditioning to read it, because if it resonates with them and you're telling a story to them, the technical jargon or whatever, it, it, it's almost irrelevant. Don't try and make yourself sound too clever, just tell me a good story. Um, and I, I'm sure you've probably read it as well, but one of the first books I was, we, well, I was given at GB boxing was uh, a book by Dan John. And he tells a story better than any strength conditioning coach I know. And ultimately the story always comes back to probably do the basics, do them well, but it's just such a gripping story. And this is where, as you said, business comes into it because all marketing is doing is simply telling you a story. Here was a person, they have this problem. I provide them with this solution. Here's the proof. And that's just, mm -hmm. you know, that's strength conditioning, that's business, you know, whatever. But if you start going too technical, you lose the HR person. person. Um, 
or if you start not explaining your point well enough, it just becomes, I'm a good communicator. I've worked with lots of people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think you nailed it there as well in terms of proofreading. That's, that's huge. You know, get, get your friend to read it, get his friend to read it, get people to critique it. You know, don't be, don't be fickle about it. You know, get your mates to have a little look at it. What do you think? Do you think I should include this? Do you think I should change this around? Does that look good? Does that look bad? Get that, get that feedback because I'd much rather my friend tell me that my CV is pretty shit than the employer just not, um, not call me back, you know? So we're all in that situation really. Yeah. And going back to that, I mean, I know we've had discussions offline. I've had it with another friend of mine who's in a similar position to you looking through hundreds of CVs and you, you just won't get the, it's nice to think that for example, you might email somebody back and be like, by the way, there's a typo. You, I don't know, applied to the university of Hertfordshire when this is a job for, you know, uh, the university of Warwick. They're not going to tell you that. They'll just be like, look, if you can't put in the time to read it, which takes two minutes, I'm not going to spend two minutes emailing you back to tell you why you didn't get this wrong. Yeah. And I think exactly with that, you know, if people do want to reach out and kind of send the CV over or something like that, I'm more than happy to just, you know, spend 10 minutes just kind of jotting some feedback on that. You know, I, I will do that because that's the kind of advice that people are going to need, you know, going into an internship. You kind of, you need to know what the employer needs and wants to see. So if, if anybody listening um, is bothered, you know, feel free, reach out and I'll, I'll try and help the best I can. Yeah. And I will say as well, don't, like, I, I like seeing CVs and cover letters because uh, as you said, there is some sort of uh, stuff that is agreeable regardless of who you speak to. As you said, no typos, no spelling mistakes, um, capital S full stops, that sort of thing. Um, there's stuff that everyone would agree with, but then there's stuff which for example, like you mentioned about putting a profile photo on there. Some people agree with that. Some people disagree with that. Some people like a few lines at the start of a CV. Some people say it's just taking up space. I like seeing how other people present it just so I, it'll either reaffirm how I do mine or I'll think, oh, that's a bloody good idea that I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, exactly. I think there's, there's a lot of different examples online in terms of CVs. Look at them, you know, go and see what you think actually looks good. What do you think kind of demonstrates your story and your, your advert, basically? Your CV is your advert. It's, you need to be able to portray that pretty well. Mm. Um, and it's, it's definitely not a place, this is another one going back to that. Your CV and your cover letter is definitely not a place to be shy. You know, it's, it's your opportunity to tell them why you're really good for this position you know and and if you struggle sort of giving yourself compliments and that kind of thing that's that's okay as well but you need to kind of demonstrate what you can do for that organization you know if you are really enthusiastic then tell them that you're really enthusiastic and like you said tell them a story about why that's the case especially at this internship level where you may be lacking a little bit of experience tell me what you can offer you know i probably know from looking at your cv what you you can't offer Tell me what, why you, why you? Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. I would just move the conversation uh, forward a little bit to the uh, interview stage. So let's say you sent in a CV, you've sent in a cover letter, uh, you've perhaps made contact beforehand, you get to the interview. Um, again, this is a broad question. I'll share a specific example of mine if nothing uh, comes, uh, if nothing comes to your mind immediately, but are there any specific awkward questions that you've had that you feel are worth sharing or any perhaps advice you would give when you get asked a question, you're like, you know, I don't know, you start to set, get the shakes. I think 
Christ, how do I answer that? Well, like you said, I think every, every interview will be slightly different. You know, people will, will want to see different things. They'll have a different pla- uh, practical element and they'll have a different sort of task. Um, it probably, can, for an interview, it, it goes without saying, prepare, 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 prepare. Um, try and know the ins and outs. You know, if it is a task where you're going to have to speak, um, speak to a group of interns, you know, about a coach development um, program, you know, if you're going to be given a presentation, then nail that presentation. If the task is that you're going to have to deliver a coaching session to a group of athletes, then practice that session, practice it a lot. You know, so preparation really is going to be a, a big key here. Um, in terms of interview questions, I don't really have any massively awkward ones that do kind of spring out. I know for my job at Warwick, I did kind of drop the ball a little bit, actually. Um, there was um, one asking about the, the, the strategy of Warwick. Um, and this was an example of where I didn't do a great job because I wasn't sure what the strategy was. And in that situation, you know, my boss was there, sat in front of me, there's two other people, and I'm just there like, oh, no, like, there's no way I can lie. You know, it's strategies and missions and all those things that organizations use. They're very, they're very specific. You know, people spend hours and hours going through that. And my response was, um, I'm not sure, honestly. You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. But let's get over it. Let's move on, please. You know, save me this. Um, and, you know, that's, if I didn't get this job, then I would, I'd be fine with that because I probably didn't prepare as well as I could have, evidently. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know, do you have any awkward questions uh, that you can ask? So the, the main one was, this is going for a few years back, and I, I mean, I think it's a terrible question to ask, but I do think, and I don't think many SNC organisations would ask it, but, so I wouldn't scare people with, but my most awkward question was, uh, how much money would we have to pay you for you to accept the role and of course as as is any snc job or most snc jobs these days the salary on the cover uh, on the application form was competitive um so i would just say a couple of different bits of advice funny enough the advice i went with which i would not advise was um a coach that i interned under he said getting his job he deliberately undercut everyone else because he was like let me do a good job prove my worth i need to just get the job because they're so competitive and then I will stake my claim for a pay rise a year in. Now, personally, I think that's just not like that. That's not how business works. You don't, you don't undercut yourself and then say, Oh, by the way, you know, all of what I was giving you last year. Now that is worth X amount more. So you need to pay me more for it. Like I've had it myself where, for example, when I first started training people, I was training them for 10 pound an hour because I was so desperate to make any money and then it got to the point where I was like hang on a minute it takes me half an hour to cycle there half an hour to cycle back this much time to write the program then I have to deliver the program and then I was like right so I'm getting paid by 30p like this is ridiculous and then I wanted a glorified paper round 100 percent. and then I got into a position where I was like right I know I'm worth more than that let me try and double it to 20 pound and of course I later found out that this client would have happily paid three four times more than that but not now that I've been giving it to him for such a discounted rate. So I think you've got to know your worth. Um, those questions I wouldn't really expect to be asked, to be fair. But that's a yeah, that's a tricky one. Avoid avoid naming specific figures. Um, 
they will know how much they can pay you. Um, so yeah, if you want to say, pay me what I'm worth, if you know, I, yeah, it's not a question I would, uh, entertain. Um, but you probably won't get something like that. I've had interviews where I've had to write a program from scratch, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful question for seeing how well people can simplify because, we, you know, as strength and conditioning coaches, we're really passionate about it. And I don't know, we'll have a three second tempo or we'll pair this exercise with that exercise for post-activation potentiation, all that malarkey. But something like that really shows what you know, shows what you know is in, in the moment and shows how simply and well you can communicate it. But yeah, that, those are probably two of the trickier ones that I've had. Otherwise, I just said the interviewer probably wants to see you for you. They're not there to trip you up. Um, so don't, you know, do your homework, but don't think they're out to get you, so to speak. A hundred percent. Yeah. Just be yourself. I think be yourself. The, the interviews are always going to be a little bit of a nerve wracking situation. You know, I know I've definitely gone into interviews and just portrayed myself in a totally bad light, you know, because of how nervous I was or, or how much I was overthinking a certain situation, you know, and that happens, you know, when the interviewer will get that to an extent, they know that it's a, a horrible position to be in. And you're just going to have to accept that, accept that you need to get a certain amount of interviews under your belt for you to feel a little bit more confident with it. Um, but be yourself, demonstrate what you can do. Um, and hopefully the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. And I was in going back to your earlier point where you said meet a coach uh, for coffee or, you know, if you can get them on the phone, whatever. Um, but getting to know them as a person, as well as, for example, getting them to, uh, getting to understand as a coach because uh, when it came to the GB boxing internship uh, got into the interview and then the first thing the coach said to me was I recognize your face have we met before I like stuff like that goes a long way or even if getting to know them on a personal level because you're going to immediately like me chatting to you now I'm completely at ease because we know each other and we've worked alongside each other so I don't have to overthink about what I'm going to ask or she's this the right thing to say because there's that relationship there. So if you've met this person for coffee, they're not going to be grilling you on why you want the role. They're going to be a lot more personable to you. Whereas when it comes to the interview and they're suited and booted and they're almost, dare I say, game face on, especially if there's HR in there as well, they might be a slightly different person to what they otherwise would be, dare I say. So if you've broken that ice beforehand, you don't have to be so nervous. Definitely. I think better the devil you know than the better the devil you don't. So I think it's, it's always good to know those kind of things. Yeah, I agree with that. 100%. If we just sort of shift uh, almost a slight sideways track. So we mentioned internships, we've mentioned placements. Uh, if we just talk about mentorships now, because I know they're quite controversial in the world of strength and conditioning. Um, so we've both been mentored by some fantastic people. But let's just talk about a mentorship process. What makes a good mentorship process? And then I'll follow up with some other questions well i think you know a good mentor and a good a good process it it's probably going to be individual to the person um I, i'm going to say that to start with but i think some of the things a mentor should be good at is communication that's a, that's kind of an obvious one i think they need to be good at communication and that's that's not just talking you know communication is a two-way street they need to know when to talk and when to shut up you know when they should be listening and taking things in they should be able to demonstrate you know or at least get empathy you know and and know where this you know person in front of them is coming from you know what it's like to be in their shoes and 
how to how to kind of use their experiences to shape this process. Um, I think that's a big one for me. Mentorship. I've had some, I've had some really good mentors, you know, and me personally, as I kind of said it before is I really like, um, mentors that are quite critical. You know, I would much rather somebody tell me, you know, from the best place of their heart, you know, that, look, you're not doing good enough here. You know, it is, it is awful. Like it makes you want to go in the corner and cry, you know, but you, you need to know if, you know, they're expecting better of you, you know, because you're dropping the ball elsewhere and you just kind of, your ego will be a little bit deflated. Of course, you know, that's, that's going to happen. That's, that's human nature. You've just been told some bad news, you know, it's, it's disappointed, you know, all those horrible feelings, but it's not because they're trying to be horrible. It is because they're trying to help, you know, that they're, they're holding you to a high standard, which is a compliment in itself. You know, they're not shooting you down because they think you're, you're bad. They're, they're giving you a little bit of advice because they know you can be really, really good. That's, that's a compliment. Yeah. Um, Sorry, just to chip in my own personal story. Um, so one of the schools I was on placement at uh, during my PGC, uh, the PE team did a fantastic job from a pastoral perspective. Like I would argue they were more than just PE teachers and they were actually looking after uh, the kids' best interests when sort of other members of the school perhaps had struggled. And I remember having a conversation with this young chap, like head screwed on, but not necessarily academic. And one of the things he said about certain teachers was, oh, I'm not doing the homework. They've asked me to write two lines. Like, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing that. And he's like, they, and I thought it was fascinating because I was, in my mind, before he said that, I would be thinking, you know, this teacher might have been like, right, well, I don't know. They struggle with English. If I give them, I don't know, whole SL, whatever, it's going to be too much for them. It's going to deflate them. So let's, let's start easy and let's build from there, which again, fairly logical we'll go two lines and then maybe next week we'll do a paragraph, then we'll do an essay, whatever. But as you said, by having, dare I say, that mentor who is almost singing your praises every week, regardless of how well you've actually done, after a while, it doesn't mean anything and you've dropped the ball without realising. And it's almost like there's no consequence. Whereas, you know, as you said, with the good mentors that we've had, it, it is absolutely cutting. And it's almost one of those things where, you feel even more disappointed in yourself for letting them down. So obviously you're annoyed you've done a bad job, but then it's also doing a bad job and them seeing it is almost even worse, dare I say. Yeah. And I think hundred percent agree. And this isn't to kind of make people scared of doing a bad job because failure is, is, is huge. You know, you need failure to grow. Um, one of my favorite books is black box thinking, you know, um, and black box thinking basically outlines um, flight, you know, the aviation community and how um, black boxes on a plane are there to literally pick up what went wrong. You know, so why did the plane crash? You know, what went wrong and how can we fix it? And they feed it into their system, you know, so then that mistake will never happen again. And that's, that's all failure is, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, it's not done. You've just found a way that doesn't work. And that's, that's massive. You know, I think that's really important. So it's not to say be scared of failure because that's not what we're getting at. If you try really, really hard and ultimately still fail, that's fine. That is, that is 100% fine. 
But if you fail because you've been lazy or you took your, your eye off the ball or you did something um, that you've been corrected on before, you know, that then we've got things that we need to correct. And then you probably do need a little bit of a, a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I wish I could remember who the quote is attributed to, but it's something like, uh, mistakes are fine, just don't make the same one twice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so I think that's, that's huge. Um, so critical, having a mentor that can really like be an outsider from your situation in a way, you know, and take away all those emotional biases that you have, you know. So looking at it from an outsider's perspective, seeing that, you know what, Todd, you're having a difficult time, um, training your netball girls because they're not engaged in these kind of things for you. That is a, that is a very hurtful situation you're in because you feel like they're, they don't like you as a person, you know, for me, if you come to me as a mentor, you know, I can look at it more objectively and I can ask you some questions. Okay. Well, are, are they, um, are they warming up properly? Are you getting some good warm up games in there? You know, are you engaging them from the start? Do you have simple things like music? You know, there's little things that you can do that you may not even be thinking about because you're so here and you're so sort of insecure about this kind of this, this negative atmosphere. So that's where mentors are really powerful. I think is, is their ability to kind of guide you through that process. You know, they're not going to give you answers, but they probably are going to ask you quite probing questions and kind of let you figure it out yourself. Yeah. And I think you've also hit upon a great, um, great point there is as you said they're not just going to say jordan do this because then you you learn nothing because then you know you may well do that and it may well be better than what you've been doing so then you think right well this is working better this this is quote unquote the answer rather than uh so i think in episode 16 of the platform to perform podcast uh i had a chap who mentioned the importance of something called 360 degree management he said the importance of someone lower down in the hierarchy being able to feed up and it might be they might be like oh why don't you i don't know um add sprints to your warm-up because you've not potentiated somebody or whatever but if the conversation isn't there the snc coach might say i don't know well the technical coach doesn't like us doing that because he wants to sprint with the ball and we had this many injuries last year because we were over sprinting them that's completely false scenario but you need to know why things don't happen in a certain way. Or even if you have a good idea, you can then say to your mentor, well, actually, I was thinking about changing this. What do you think of that? Um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, the difference there that I think you kind of um, touched on was a mentor, you know, isn't necessarily going to give you the right answer. You know, they're going to guide you in this process. They're going to, it's probably a little bit more long-term. You know, I, I do see mentors as, as longer term kind of um, assistance. Whereas if I were to tell you, right, you need to be doing three sets of 10 for this exercise, for this adaptation, that's probably not mentorship. That's probably coach development. You know, I'm teaching you the technical aspects of your role. You know, it's, it's, there's a performance outcome. I know if you can program for hypertrophy, you know, whereas a mentor's point of view was, how can I make you more engaging to the wider population to feed in with your ultimate goal? You know, so the, the different coach development, you know, is, is, is a little bit more tangible. You know, you, you probably can say you can run a good Olympic lifting session. You know, that's, that's probably for the most part, pretty um, clear cut. 
but a mentor, their their goals are a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more spiritual, I guess you could say, you know, a little bit more longer based. Okay. So, and again, this, this question causes a little bit of controversy depending on which industry you ask. And I know it's a very sort of uh, potentially controversial topic in the strength and conditioning community. Do you think that you should have to, or do you think you should pay for a mentor? Difficult question. Um, it's one that we've, um, me and my boss, Nick Manning at the university of Warwick, we've spoke about quite a lot, you know, um, he's a really good mentor, you know? So if we use that as an example, um, he's a good mentor and I don't pay him, you know, I don't pay him, but our organization has put us in a situation where it's almost a part of his role, you know? So in that way, it's, it's a very convenient mentorship and it, it happened, you know, kind of organically, you know, he is my line manager, but it was kind of an organic um, growth in that sense. If, for example, um, I wasn't a part of the University of Warwick and I wanted Nick to be my mentor, well, in that sense, you know, he's got a skill set that I, I need. You know, he's got a skill set and, and this vision that, that I really want. You know, and unfortunately, this is the world we live in. You know, if you want somebody's services, you know, if you want to buy some clothes off somebody, you have to, you have to pay them for it. You know, I think it's no different to coaching. It is coaching. Um, and that actually brings me back to um, a conversation with Dave Hembra um, probably like two years ago. He literally said, um, he was talking me through some goal setting situations and some reflective practices, you know, and I sent him a message saying, really appreciate your time, mate. Um, you know, it's been really helpful. And you just said, it's, it's just coaching, Jordan. It's just coaching, you know, and it's, and it is, you know, it is a service at the end of the day. Um, I know if you go to like a business um, model situation, you will be assigned mentors as part of that organization. And it just happens quite clear cut. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? What do you think about uh, mentorship? I think it's difficult. So like just, I think firstly, there's a huge difference between a business mentorship and a strength and conditioning mentorship and I think you need to be clear on what the end goal of that mentorship is. So for example, if I'm talking business mentorship, I know for a fact, just from my own experience, like even for example, uh, of late, I've been looking into um, uh, e-marketing and just by, I mean, fortunately this content was free on a website called Skillshare, but it talks about all the different things with e-marketing and even little things which I would never have thought of, which might be intuitive to someone in that line of business. So for example, if you're putting in a URL in your product email, don't put too many URLs too close together because if you're, somebody's using a mobile phone, it's too easy to tap on the wrong one. Um, and even for example, I've been thinking about this on a deeper level because for example, I've had dyslexic children in my class. Now, if you put black text on white background, and you use certain fonts, it appears too close together. It's very, very difficult for them to read. Um, and so many different examples of if you just think, oh, sod it, I'll figure it out myself, which you can do, but you either A, end up in a similar position to what you said with people who put typos in their CVs and they never hear back, they never get feedback because it's just such a sloppy error that they're not aware of that no one gives them the time of day to tell them, by the way, you're doing this wrong. The same way if you're going into marketing or business and you're making very obvious errors, the only you don't get any feedback. It's just 
like casting a rod and getting no fish. Like you don't get to see into the water to see how many fish were in there. Did I put it in the right lake or, you know, going off track here. Um, but business mentorships, I think absolutely there's a lot of good free stuff, but I think if someone's going to say a good mentorship in terms of business should save you the money that you're investing in it. And then some, uh, strength and conditioning is a bit of a difficult one because I think if the goal is to get you a job at the end of it, I think you've got to be very open to the possibility that there's only so few organizations that are hiring and even yourself, um, being in the position you are, um, like I'm sure you've had hundreds of applications for a university role. Now you think if you take that to, I don't know, working within the EIS, we both know how hard it is to even get your foot in the door just to, you know, see what's what there. Um, if they're developing you as a coach, I think great, but, and I do think it's necessary, but also know what the end goal is. Cause if the end goal is for you to get a job that can obviously, you can develop someone's skill set as much as you want. But as you said, long-winded answer and almost avoided the question make sure there's stuff about your technical development but understand that that's the equivalent of going to university getting a sports science degree because everyone's going to be technically competent but if your mentor is talking you through emotional intelligence and how to be more personable which again is obviously um highly uh highly opinionated or highly um coming at the word it's uh, it's not black and white so should you pay for a mentorship business mentorship? Yeah. If, as long as you've done your research and you know, they're reliable. Yeah. I think you should pay for that because you're going to earn the money back. S and C mentorship. I think just be clear on what the outcome is. Is it to make you a better coach or is it to get you a job? Cause a hundred percent, it'll make you a better coach. Just don't think it'll guarantee you a job. Yeah. I think there's probably a strategic element to it as well, honestly, you know, and it sounds a little bit kind of, um, false, but if we think about paying somebody for a mentorship, you know, and let's say my dream job is to get into the UFC. I want to be, you know, a strength and conditioning coach at the UFC. Okay. And I know that Duncan French, you know, he actually has a mentorship program. That is going to be a good investment because I'm going to get his experiences. He's obviously got this wealth of experience that I can draw upon. That's, that's going to be money well spent for me, you know, and the caveat to that is, that now I'm in front of him, you know, he's seen my face. He knows, he knows me as a person. That's great. So if my goal is to get into the UFC, Duncan French would be a good person. If my goal is to get into the UFC, you know, I wouldn't go speak to, or not necessarily go speak to somebody at a local Sunday, um, Sunday league football team and ask for him to mentor me, you know, it needs to be specific. There needs to be, they need to have something that you need, you know, that they can guide you with. And that's, that's my opinion. And whether you think, it's worth paying for well that's that's on you how much do you value their service and how much do you need it yeah and also as you said you almost need a way and it's very hard to put a figure on this but determining how valuable that service is and is that person the best um use of your investment because if i'll be honest if all they're doing is improving your technical side of things I always think to myself, and again, anyone who knows me knows that financially I'd like to think of myself as well, reasonably sensible, but have you tapped out the free option? You know, it's obviously going to be worse because that's the way business, well, depending on who you're using. Um, but have you tapped out the free option? Don't use a sledgehammer to crack a walnut. Don't be paying somebody thousands of pounds to mentor you as a strength and conditioning coach. When, for example, I don't know, you've not read a single book on the subject. Yeah. I like that example, sledgehammer to um, crack a walnut. I've, um, 
I've only heard don't use a grenade to do the washing up. You know, it's, it's, a, it's the same kind of thing. You know, I do agree. Tap out the free stuff first, you know, upskill yourself so that when you actually do go in front of that paying, um, that person who you're paying, you're in a much better position to actually get the most from it. A hundred percent. I think going back to the university example we mentioned, um, all it does is give you the ability to think critically. So make sure when you're taking, for example, that person out to coffee, you, like, if they've got an hour, they've got an hour. You can't be wasting that hour by saying, I don't know, um, what's your favorite leg exercise? You know, you, you've got to be asking questions that only they themselves could answer. And for example, I don't know, you couldn't have found out the assistant coach's details and asked them. You couldn't have asked the HR lady that person, you know, that question. Yeah, of course, mate. Of course. I think, like we said, it's a very sort of controversial question. And my opinion on that is if it's the right mentor, they've got the right skill set, you know, and they are charging for it. It's how much do you want it? You know, it's how much do you want to pay for it? Yeah. Yeah. What's my opinion on it? couldn't agree more and it's not so much you're paying for an hour of their time if they've got 20 years in the game whatever then you're not paying for the hour you're paying for what they've learned as a result of those 20 years if that means i don't know you get to where they are in five years then you know that's a good investment as you said it's up to you to determine how valuable that is and also you obviously judge your own financial circumstances um last last couple of questions just based on your university uh role um the first thing, or sorry, before we get to that, uh, is there anything you'd recommend doing post-interview? Um, if Well, yeah. Post-interview is always a weird one because it's, it's just, it's such an adrenaline rush. You leave an interview and you just feel knackered. You know, you've, you've been on edge for probably the past two weeks preparing this high-stress situation. Like, you're going to leave and you're going to feel pretty exhausted mentally, physically, you know, and it's kind of like a routine that I'll just go home and just nap. Honestly, that's probably, that's kind of the only consistent thing that happens for me. But I think, I know you like to write down all the questions, you know, and I think that's, that's awesome. Um, you know, write down the interview questions that you got asked, you know, try and try and pinpoint um, what they wanted from that, because chances are you may get asked that in the future. You know, now you've got some, some valuable experience data that you can then use. Um, I think post interview, you know, I, me personally, I think you've got to wait. You've just got to wait and see what happens. You know, I would try and take your mind off it. Try not to stress, which is going to be a really hard thing to do. But ultimately that will not change the outcome. You stressing out. I think if you get off of the job, fantastic. You know, if you don't get off of the job, I think, not congratulate them but say thank you for your time I really appreciate you taking the time to interview me Um, and if I could actually get some feedback on on my interview on my application just so I know what to do in future one that's a good thing because you get feedback to make you better but two you've shown that you're you're not a dick basically you know you've shown that you can take you know bad feedback you can take um, bad news well and you can try and make the most out of it you know, they're, they're going to respond well to that. Who knows? The, the person who got the job may, may not actually accept it, you know. So don't, don't leave yourself in a, bad, in a bad light. Don't leave a bad taste in the mouth. Yeah, and, you know, anyone who's been in SNC long enough knows that every, everything in SNC is just six degrees of separation. Like, you know, 
the somebody who's the assistant coach there may well move jobs. A job comes up there. Right, I've seen your face. I thought you did really well. You missed out because I don't know. Um, we hired someone who, I don't know, drove a car or lived two minutes or whatever. I don't know. But don't burn those bridges just because you're upset because you think that that other person didn't possibly do as well as you or whatever. Agreed. Agreed. I think you, you're going to have to get, it sounds so cringy, but you're going to have to get comfortable with failure. You know, like you are going to not get offered jobs. You are going to mess some stuff up. And that is, that is part of it. You know, at the time you're going to be disheartened, but let's look at it. What can we, what can we learn from this situation and what can we use to, to feed that into yourself? Yeah. And again, I know, um, I know it's probably just my OCD tendencies, but I do like writing down the question because I think, you know, make, as you mentioned, with not knowing the strategy or the mission statement, you make that mistake once and you think, right, next time I'm going to drill those. Yeah, it might not come up, but I mean, as long as you can do it in a uh, tactical way, you might be able to slide that in there. You might be able to say, oh, well, my values have always been X, Y, Z. I know here you value one, two, three. And I really think I can deliver it in this way because I've done so in the past when I was here, there and everywhere. Um, it, it, there's no such thing as being over-prepared and you're not going to regret it, dare I say. But I also like what you said in terms of, you'll never know what they're thinking. But if you can remember, for example, what they asked and roughly how you answered it, you might think, oh, actually... I use this story, but I know that that was just because I was nervous. And actually this story is a lot better. Agreed. Agreed. You know, it's, I think anybody that's been in an interview that's kind of high stress is I, I struggle to remember what went on. You know, I, I leave the interview and it's a, it's a blackout, you know, I'm like, I don't know why I just said for the last hour, you know, it's, it's horrible, you know? Um, but if you can remember it, it's definitely beneficial to try and to write those down. Yeah, it's funny. I almost wish, I always think it's intriguing because, you know, you are on a lot of adrenaline. You do black out. I always think I'd love to see, especially in failed interviews, I'd love to see how I came across and just to see whether my perception of how I came across and the reality of watching it back, whether they were close as I thought they were or whether actually how I thought I came across and how I actually came across were miles apart. And that's, that's actually a really big point in the black box thinking book is about your perception, you know, and how your perception of whether you actually failed or not is, is influential in your development. So if you, if you mess something up, you know, you, there's no way of denying it that you messed up this task, but you don't think you did, then you're never going to grow from that. So you're just going to keep failing, you know, and then it leads into the organizational thing of blame or it was, it was Todd's fault, you know, so That'd be awesome if you could like see your failed attempts and videos or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something that I'd uh, be intrigued by. And even post interview, I think, or going into the interview, just one more thing that's popped into my head is, as you said, names are so important by all means, obviously find out the names of who's interviewing you. But if you can, I know this is probably going a bit OTT, but every one of that organization is probably going to talk from the woman who or man who welcomes you into reception to the cleaner who you held the door open. Like they're going to talk. So for example, if you know the names of the head coach, but the assistant head and the HR woman are in there and they greeted you earlier in that day and you just direct everything to the head coach, like it's, it's going to be obvious. It's going to rub off. So learn people's names, obviously use them. And uh, it's just something I've sort of stumbled across recently. I'm not saying to do it. I'm not saying not to do it but even thanking the interviewer for their time in an email, because if it, if it is that razor thin, 
then that may well drop it over the line. You don't have to, you don't have to do it in a sincere way. But as you said, you've got hundreds of applicants for a role at the University of Warwick, and if all if all else fails, you'll probably hire the person you like the most and you think you get on with the most. I assume that you know, and that's um, I'm trying to think what book it is now. Never eat alone, um, and that that is basically the concept. There is you know. Oh, what does he say? It's basically, um, if everything is equal, people will want to hire the people that they like. Everything not being equal, people will still want to hire people they like, you know, and that's not to sound discouraging, like qualifications and experience don't mean anything. But I know we've spoke about it before, like a little bit of an interview kind of test is, well, actually, would I go for a pint with this person in front of me? You know, do, is he personable? You know, is is she good at her job? You know, can she hold a conversation? Those kind of things. It's, it's important. We're in a people business. We're in a social business. If you can't make me like you within an hour, then, you know, you're going to struggle when you've got 30 minutes to teach a group of netballers. So I think. Yeah, hundred percent. And even just something I've jotted down for the coaching assessment, if there is one, like it's not there to catch you out. I know sometimes these things, especially for example, UKCA assessment, it almost feels a little bit forced. But like, if humor's your thing, do humor. If uh, that's not your thing and you're super technical and you think that's worked well for you in the past, then by all means do it. Because if you get given the role on the premise of something that you're not, then you're going to hate the job very quickly. And even if you've spent hours getting the role or whatever, you're soon going to resent it. So whatever makes you unique and you good as a coach, do that. And if they don't like that, then you can be like, you know what? Maybe it's a self-preserving strategy. I don't know, but it's not me they didn't like it's just the way that I behaved in that situation and that's being true to me so there's no point me trying to compromise uh what I feel I do best that's a good thing you know I think if you do get a no then ultimately it wasn't for you you know you wasn't a good fit in that situation and that's that's a blessing you know and that's a blessing you can find somewhere that is a good fit for you and and that's that's me being pretty again probably just trying to preserve my own ego there but if they don't get you and your experiences and your personality, then awesome. Let's move on to the next thing. Absolutely. And just in wrapping up, so you obviously work in university sport at the moment. And uh, it's probably one of those unique environments where, for example, if you're working in school for a professional club, we can talk about standards within culture and the importance of, I don't know, performance attitude, whatever you want to label it. How do you strike the balance between, look, here's our standards, but also let's remember the reality we are working with athletes who aren't professional potentially well they're going to be on the piss a few nights a week how do you strike that balance between what's acceptable and what's not i think you've got to set your set your boundaries really you know if you can do that at the beginning of the year and um have a pretty honest conversation with the team and the coach as well and just set your set your minimums you know you're going to attend this amount of sessions per week um, and we demand this, you know, and if you can put that, not demand, but we, that's what we need, you know, in order to make this an effective team, we need these things from everybody. If you can make the team lead that discussion, you know, and hold each other accountable, then I feel like it's got that much more worth. Um, and in terms of them going on the piss and all those types of things, they're, they're going to do it. You know, it's university. They're going to eat shit. They're going to go out. They're not going to sleep enough. They're probably going to, um, do some bad training along the way as well. But education is going to be the thing. If you can, if you can teach them good practice, they're that much more likely to hold on to it. 
later on in the year and later on in life. So if, if they can do it themselves, that's, that's so much better, you know, and that goes for setting up a squat rack that goes for, you know, telling them how to eat an effective post-workout meal, all those things. If you can teach them, it's going to be a lot more beneficial for them. So that would be, that'd be what I'd go with. No, I like that. And I like to recent post yours and especially how to train with a hangover. And it's like, let's not be about the bush. Sometimes these type of athletes are going to be hungover and it's dare I say damage limitation rather than preaching. Oh, you need to be teetotal or anything. That's just realistically not going to happen in that environment. We, me and, um, so at the university of Warwick, we've got a head badminton coach and he's full time. And we had this discussion, you know, and, and we, we looked at, we looked at university as a, a timescale, you know, we've got three years minimum, potentially seven, eight years if they do a PhD. Let's not cry over the fact that the first year might be a little bit unproductive in a sense, you know, they are going to go out, they are going to miss a few sessions, they are going to, you know, come in hungover. But if we can slowly start ingraining some good, some good habits, that's going to carry over to year two, year three. And that's awesome. I wouldn't want to take somebody's freshers year away from them. You know, I feel like they need that. So I'm not going to encourage it. I'm not going to tell them the best places to go out, but you know, I might not come down as them and uh, come down on them as hard as if they were a third year and they're a performance player and we're in the finals. So I think it's knowing your, knowing your population, but also being realistic that not everybody wants to be an elite athlete. You know, you want to make everybody better, but knowing what is a good level of, of sacrifice that they're willing to make and how can we shape that? And one question on that subject that I think is interesting, especially with university sport. If, for example, you're in an elite environment, then it's very easy to say, for example, you absolutely, it's very easy to be black and white and say, no, you shouldn't be drinking. You're paid to be a professional athlete. It's not what we expect. And there's somebody else who wants your place on the team. Um, how do you strike the balance between being personable to the university athletes? So we're not too far removed from university ourselves. And as you said, you know what it's like um, versus being completely removed from it where it's all kind of a laugh with this coach. Cause he just wants us to be professional and strong, fit fast. But how do you strike that balance? Almost dare I say between being a friend, but also being professional as a coach, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, like you said before, everybody has their own style. Um, I think, well, I don't know. I'd like to say that I can relate with a lot of athletes, you know, so I'm still, I'm still pretty young myself. I'm 26. Um, I've been in that university situation. I get it. So I will always try and have a laugh. I will always try and make the gym or, you know, doing a sports hall session. I'll try and make it fun. You know, I'll try and make it fun. I'll have some good conversation if you make it too militant, you know, in the wrong population, you're probably going to get, you know, negative, ne- uh, negative results from that. So for me, you've got to know who's in front of you and you've got to know um, where you fit within that. And that is emotional intelligence. You know, where do I fit within this current landscape of athletes that I've got in front of me? Sometimes it might be that you don't say much because you've got somebody who's, um, you know, quite loud, quite energetic, and your role might be to facilitate that, you know, and then you might have the complete opposite where you've got a really introverted group that kind of need the energy building up. So then you might be, you know, that guy that stood in the front, you know, making jokes and trying to get the energy up. You're going to have to kind of adopt different, different roles. 
as a coach, if you're just one coach throughout your whole career and you can't adapt, then you're probably going to struggle a little bit, honestly. And probably be unemployed for that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And uh, yeah. just in wrapping up, I know we obviously we've both been fortunate to work alongside some great coaches, some great mentors. If you could spend time observing one coach with their athletes, uh, who would you choose to spend time with and why? Hmm. Question. I think for me, Customato. Um, so Mike Tyson's coach, I think from what I've seen of him of, of clips, you know, he's obviously a very technical guy and just the way he can build that rapport with, with Mike, you know, the way he can obviously create a really solid relationship is, is huge. But what I love about that, that relationship in itself is that Mike Tyson's probably the scariest guy in the world. You know, he's, he's, he's intimidating and you've got this little bit older guy who's a little bit soft spoken, but he's there giving him really cutting feedback, you know, but also can nature him as a person. I think that's just crazy. You know, I think it's so, it's just nice to see. It's quite inspiring, you know, that you can have those two opposites, you know, in one person and they work really well in harmony and they're actually, they've actually worked really well. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot to be said for almost the art of mastering, being able to give cutting feedback for the right reasons, but then you still respect the person rather than turn around and think, oh, well, they're a dick because they don't like me or, you know, whatever. I think it's such a such a skill and something that probably comes with a lot of uh, experience and wisdom. Definitely, definitely. And uh, penultimately, if you could recommend, whether you've mentioned a couple of books, you mentioned Never Eat Alone, you mentioned Black Box Thinking, uh, Brett Bartholomew's Conscious Coaching, but if there's any... Is there any particular standout recommended resource that you have, whether it's an app, podcast, book, whatever? Um, I think in terms of um, podcasts, I, I really enjoy Brett Bartholomew's Art of Coaching. That's a big one. I, you know, I like Pacey Performance. It's nice and varied. You get a lot of different um, people on there. And in terms of books, I've just finished reading The Culture Code. Um, and the culture code is is really sort of shaped the way I want to be as a person, actually, you know, in response to a leader and a mentor and those kind of things. So if you're if you're heading towards that where you have like influence over an organization, then the culture code is is awesome. Perfect. I'll put those uh, in the show notes. Um, and where can people reach out to you if they've got any questions? You mentioned, obviously, if they want to drop your CV just for you to have a look. Yeah. So um Either reach out to me on Instagram. So my um, my handle is Jordan Jordan Webster underscore coach, or my email address is um, Jordan Webster at Warwick AC UK. Um, and feel free, you know, I I will reply. It may take me a little bit of time, you know, depending on where we are in the term. But you know, reach out. You know, it's you need to you need to kind of get used to um, trying to be sociable with some coaches and improving your network. So feel free. Wicked. And if there is uh, one sort of take home you'd like people to uh, take from this podcast, what would you like that to be before we wrap up? Failure is going to happen, you know, so assess why it happened, assess what you can do to make it better and then go again. That would, that would be it. And that's, that's for everything from interviews, CVs, coaching, and probably life. Spot on. Uh, thank you very much, John. Obviously I appreciate I've uh, eaten quite into your time. So I'm very grateful. Um, so thanks very much, mate. Thanks a lot, Todd. See you later, mate. Take it easy, mate. 
Thank you for listening to episode number 22 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Jordan Webster. If you like the show, then please leave us a review via your preferred platform. And if you're in a position to support the podcast or you simply want access to the educational strength and conditioning content that I have released via my Patreon, then you can check this out at www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. If you just like to hear more of my content, then head over to www.p2p coaching. Join us next week where I'll be talking to Brighton Ladies strength and conditioning coach Hamza Ahmed about all things to do with the youth female athlete and how to deal with the relative age effect in both physical education and strength and conditioning. Thank you for listening to the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson.